Hello, you're very welcome to the Own O'Neill podcast. It's a series of chats with some people we might find interesting. My friend Adam Shapiro has all the recording gear and all the technology stuff. And uh, I sit down, we'd be chatting to, going around County Clare particularly, and chatting to people we might, we think are interesting, and hopefully you do. If you'd like to donate or contribute or support us in this mission, we'd be delighted. And uh, the PayPal account exists, and hopefully you see it somewhere. Hello everybody, I'm after getting in the car, I'm after driving up from Ennis, up to North Clare, I'm looking out a window at the Atlantic Ocean, all is good and the music you've just heard has been played by my friend Luca Bloom, how are you Luca? It's great to see you Owen, great to see you, you're very welcome. That's a nice introduction we had there. Nice bit of music in that lovely Loudon guitar. Well, one of the many blessings I've had in my life is uh, my friendship with and love of the music of Steve Cooney. Um, He's kind of my guitar hero and he's my friend as well. And he he released this uh, solo CD of old harp tunes um, on guitar and I just... I, when it came out I just spent three months listening to nothing else and I've started to try with his blessing to um, learn in my own way uh, to play some of the tunes and I I find it incredibly healing to play that music I just well, love it's it it's after healing me it calms me down yeah <laughs> it's, it's like uh, 20 minutes ago I was in a totally different place and, and now Adam has set up the microphones we're here for a chat and I'm, I'm, I'm very honoured and delighted for so to thrilled to be here which well, you have you here you're so welcome we're you friends for a long time but yeah. it's like to put that on and, and just to sit back and have a chat as well I'm kind of into, into kind of just doing it differently do you remember the first time we met? Well, I, I remember the first time I saw you. Right. I think we met. You were playing in, in I think you were playing with Manus. You were. You were playing with Manus wow. Lunny. Wow. I'd say it was 1978. I'd yeah. say it was called the Trinity yeah. Rooms near oh, Trinity College. Yeah. Green, a green pub. Yeah. Am I right? I think so. We did. We, there, was, yeah. there was the Thomas Moore up around there that we played in a few times. I think we did a little residency there. Yeah. Um, Manus was very young, I think. Manus would have been about 18 then. Yeah. yeah. I think they were the first gigs he I did. Was, <laughs> yeah, amazing. But you came to Doolan then? Oh, I'd been to Doolan before that. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was in Doolan in 1974 with three or four renegades we piled into the Mother's Wolseley. And like 1974 was an interesting year in Ireland because Ireland had just joined the EEC, as it was known then. And I think for a lot of people in Germany and Holland, Ireland was kind of like what Thailand or Cuba would be now, a really far away place. And there was no Ryanair or EasyJet. They came in... They came in vans and they came in buses and they drove long distances. And the first time I arrived in Doolan in the August Bank Holiday weekend in 1974, the lounge in O'Connor's was a sea of rucksacks. And people were being allowed pitch tents up the back. And you remember this time. Yeah, that's what Of course you do, you know. Uh, And that was the first time. I spent three days here. That's where I learned that song, Lonesome Robin. Um, and, And I always associate that song with that time it was it was it was an amazing moment in my life that I, I 
I don't think, it, think it's too melodramatic to say that it changed my life. Because mm-hmm. it was the first time I saw uh, Michael Gussie and Packy Russell around the fire playing the, the music. And I'd grown up with music, but it was, it was ballads, it was Four Green Fields, it, but it was also um, show tunes. My mother was into the shows. Uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, all that kind of stuff. So it was a broad canvas, but also there was a sense up in Kildare that music was entertainment. That weekend I was in Clare was the first moment it really struck me that this was these people's life. This was their life. Everybody in, in the community's life. Everybody's yeah. life. And that that was a game changer for me. And I, it's kind of mad that it took me another 25 or 30 years to actually move here because I've been coming ever since. But that's kind of good. It's, uh, I, I imagine it's good that you, 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 you kind of ran away from it for, 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 and then ended up here again, that uh, you had a life to live before you got here. Too. Well, like also, I kind of needed to run away from the drink, to be honest with you. And part of that was not hanging out too much in Doolin in the 70s yeah. or the early 80s when I, when I quit, you know, um, because I, the two just went hand in hand for me. Um, Did the drink drive you cracked? Yeah. I mean, not in the way that it drove other people cracked. I mean, other people would be maybe potentially kind of violent under it or angry or I would just go down. I would just go introverted and down. I, w- I was already that way anyway. But if you can imagine kind of uh, introversion on steroids, if there's such a thing. It's hard that, to imagine you introverting down. You don't come across somebody that's introverting down. Uh, well, I, I, I was. I, I, I absolutely was. And I, I always remember a friend of mine from Kildare. There was a certain point where we'd be out having pints. And at a certain point, he'd look at me and he'd say, come back, we're losing you. Come back now. Mm-hmm. He'd actually shout at me, come back. Because he, he could see me wanting to go into the corner and just hide and just... Yeah. And I, I, the, the more you drank, the, le- the less out there you were. And, and the interesting thing about that is from the point of view of songs is that I wrote a song uh, when I was 15 or 16 called Wave Up to the Shore, which my brother Christy subsequently recorded in 1975. And it was the first good song I wrote. And that year I started drinking and I don't think I wrote another good song for about 12 or 13 years, maybe even 15 years. Because that's the effect the drink had on me. For How many so- gigs like Bar? Bar, Luca? Sorry. <laughs> you, <laughs> Barry's fine. Barry's yeah, well, fine. I just know he is Bar. Yeah, Barry's <laughs> fine. Barry's fine. Well, no, we do it, Luca. We, 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 um, okay, Luca Bloom, you are Barry Moore then. Well, what I say to people about that yeah. is that Barry Moore is who I am and Luca Bloom is what I do. Yeah. And yeah. It, it, I think Luca Bloom is who you are too. Okay, For a lot well, of people, I mean, I, well, that's cool. I, I, that's cool. I, I, I've travelled with you. I know you. I've travelled with you. I, I've, I've been on stage with you, and you kindly asked us the fiddle case and previously that uh, Quentin Cooper and myself to, to accompany you for a few nights on your tours. And I was, I was absolutely amazed to see nightly eight hundred, nine hundred, thousand, eleven hundred people standing in complete respect for one man and a guitar on a stage. What happened to bring the difference between the lad? Was it the drink that that changed everything, or was no, it the name change? It was a process. It was it was a, it was it was a very slow process. Um, I decided to stop drinking in the darkest year of my life, which would have been nineteen eighty one. Nineteen eighty one. You were young. Was, I was twenty seven. Yeah, it's very young. I I, I I was twenty seven, and I was in a dark old place, and I had been for a good few years, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. But that was also the year of the hunger strikes. Mm-hmm. And you remember the black cloud that hung sure. over Ireland that year. It was a devastating year. It, was. it really was. And, and that compounded everything that I felt, you know, about, about life, actually. Me too. Uh, How did you feel about, about did you feel uh, that the country was divided into two or did you feel it was divided into 20? You know, I didn't think like that. I didn't think like that. That's not how it affected me. Mm-hmm. I... I I just was so devastated at the cruelty of humanity. Mm-hmm. I think there was something about that year that uh, allowed me to see in full technicolor just how cruel humanity could be, that that Thatcher government, mm-hmm. rather than really negotiate with people over mm-hmm. the conditions of their imprisonment, mm-hmm. that they were actually, she was actually quite happy to see them die. Mm-hmm. And I think there was something really devastating to me about that. I just, and, you know... I, it's kind of ironic in a way that that's the year uh, I I threw in the towel. I surrendered. I realised that I couldn't go on. I didn't want to go on. I didn't know how much longer I'd be able to stay on this earth for. 
uh, at the age of 27. And, and, you're and digging, tw- what's, interesting about, what's interesting about that is that 27 is a very, seems to be a very pivotal year in a man's life. And we've lost quite a few people mm-hmm. who were also maybe in the musical world and in the art, different mm-hmm. forms of arts um, at the age of 27. And I think it's, it's a crossroads year. And I don't know how I'd have done had I not thrown in the towel um, at the age of 27. and What were you doing when you were drinking before you stopped? What were your gigs like? What was awful, your music career? Where awful. were they? What, what kind of well, I'll give you one example. I'll give you one example and, and I'm very grateful to the person who did this. I won't say what town it was because, it, I mean, 40, nearly 40 years later, it wouldn't be too embarrassing. The person mightn't even still be alive. There was a place up in the Midlands where there wasn't that many gigs for fellas like me. The only gigs were the folk clubs. Mm-hmm. You know, guys like Joe Galligan and Crusheen, you know, who I, I did three or four gigs in, in, the, in the highway in Crusheen. And they were the kinds of places that I could go and Slattery's, sing. Slattery's in Cable Street? No, the meeting place. Okay. The mid- Slattery's was for more traditional That's singers. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I played a guitar and sang my own songs and Slattery's wouldn't have been interested interested in me mm-hmm. I'd have loved to have played in Slattery's mm-hmm. but I, I don't think I ever did a gig in it the meeting place was my place I did a residency in the meeting place in the late 70s but the gigs were you know they, I did my best I, I always mean the three weeks or four weeks before you stopped drinking that kind of well time. I wanted to give you one example um, so there was a gig in, in, in a Midlands town and near the border and I had done a couple of gigs there and uh, <laughs> I noticed after a year I didn't get the call. So I rang the guy who organised the gig and I said, you know, it's been a year since I was there and I'd love to come back. And he actually said, we had a bit of a chat about you and um, we were really unhappy with your last gig and uh, we're not going to book you again. And I said, what? What? He said, well, you kind of thought you were being funny, but you kind of weren't and your language was off the charts. You know, he wouldn't have said off the charts. That's one of my own little silly things. He said, we didn't, we didn't like your language. You were cursing a lot. and um, You were out of tune a fair bit of the time and you were singing a bit out of tune as well. And This all would have been news to me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the gig was great because <laughs> people are so kind they wouldn't tell you immediately afterwards. But I was so grateful to that man. Yeah. I was so grateful to him for actually telling me the truth. I needed to hear the truth because I could feel it every day, but nobody was confirming it. People, because people at that time were so used to people being kind of everybody trouble. was drinking. Everybody was, was yeah. and like I said, I wasn't a violent troublemaker. I wasn't going around hitting lads, but I was in agony inside. I just was in agony. Everybody was drinking heavy, not just drinking. I mean, I was in Durham at the time. Drinking heavy, uh, driving with a few beers on board. Uh, you know, so some people were fighting. Others people were just going for long walks into the night. Like people don't even realise how heavy we were all drinking then, or just like, I wouldn't have been considered a drinker. In, in Doolin, and I was I, I could have drank fifteen drinks a day. Yeah, well, I remember at one stage Jim White and Liz Dunverna had a had a holy hour between it was a holy two hours in the Imperial Hotel in Liz Dunverna between half five and half past seven, and everybody from Doolin we, we were drinking all day playing tunes. Now the, the reason I was involved in drink was because of the music, but we went into well, Jim White's, and everybody went in for the two hours and got Harvey Wallbangers at fifty pence. And drank maybe 10, 15 Harry Wildbangs each. Then came back and started their gigs and started to play. And, you know, that's, that's how heavy it was. I would never deny the fact that the 70s was unbelievable fun. I mean, I was the opening act for Planksty on the Black Album Tour. I remember the Botty Band. I lived with members of the Botty Band in Dublin, you know, for a while when the Botty Band broke up. I'll forever be grateful to the meeting place for, for giving me a stage. The fun, the divilment... But to be honest with you, for a lot of people, not just me, there was a dark side as well. And I, I, I'm quite happy to acknowledge that because it's the truth. Because well, it's a learning experience. I mean, We love to romanticise the 70s for good yeah. reason, for good reason. Sure. But I think there, uh, there was a fair few casualties. But you learned what was good in yourself by going through all the hard Oh, stuff. without a shadow of a doubt. I'm so... I don't, it's not all bad. Of course it's not. I don't regret any of it. Yeah. I zero... I mean... No, that's not true. I do, I do. There were times when I was mean and there were times when I, there are things that I don't remember when I was mean. Uh, and I know it because I got a couple of digs. I never hit anyone, but I got digs because mm. I could be mean with the tongue. Mm. And I, I do regret some of that stuff. Of course I do. Uh, but I don't regret the fact that I drank. I don't regret, I don't regret any of that stuff because I eventually got to throw on a towel, which led me down a path of beginning to see what was wrong with me. And and began to find enough humility 
to ask for help and to to talk to people who were um, wiser than me and to actually sit and listen to them and begin to learn and keep writing songs and keep playing music. There was a period between 1981 and 1987 when my gigs were worse than the gigs when I was drinking. Because at least when I was drinking, there was a bit of crack. Where were you? <laughs> but the gigs, I, I heard a gig recently of a gig that I did. It actually, it was from Joe, Joe Galligan's and Crusheen. Mm-hmm. Martin O'Malley down in Milltown Malbay has tapes from gigs mm-hmm. that were in Crusheen. And he sent me one or two. And I was hoping they were the gigs from when I was drinking, but they weren't. They were the gigs from when I was just off the drink. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't listen to them because I, I could hear how uptight I was. Yes. I was so up. It was like coming out into the sunlight you know like coming into the sunlight and all of a sudden you're faced with the world and you don't have the drink and I don't do pills so there's no and you're like Jesus how do you cope with this world how do you cope with it and then you're doing gigs because it's the only way I knew how to make a living and some of those gigs so it took a couple of years to to begin to evolve as someone who could play music and have a bit of fun without the drink and that's 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 years from 1981 to 1987 I had hardly any gigs I'd hardly any learning. I, 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 there's no little or no recording, and but they were in some ways they were the best years of my life. Because were you Luca Bloom then? No, it was 1986. I was up in a place called the Tyrone Guthrie Centre, and I wrote about ten songs. I was in a band at the time called Red Square, and I kind of had this realization that I'd finally found a way to write songs that was different from anyone else, but that I needed to leave the band because it wouldn't have suited the band. Mm-hmm. And when I'd written those songs, I kind of realised that where something had moved on in me and it kind of come out a little bit in a way that was positive, that I think that it's very hard for people to change their perception of you. And I think that I had this feeling that I was, right or wrong, I had this feeling that I was forevermore going to be the fellow who was kind of struggling or the fellow who was somebody's brother. Mm-hmm. And I just said, I've had enough of this. I've really had enough of it. I need to do something different. I need to do something brave. I need to do something a bit off the wall. I knew I was going to pay a price for it in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of accepted that. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was when in 1986-87, I created this uh, identity for my music. That has nothing to do with my family, mm-hmm. nothing to do with my family life. It's just to do with the desire to get my songs out into the world so I needed to do two things. I needed to get out of Ireland and I needed to create the stage entity that became Luca Bloom. But you were living in Dublin? I was. I was living in Dublin, yeah. Mm-hmm. And when did you buy the ticket for America? At what age? What, what, what was the week before that? Before you bought the ticket? What was going through your head? A couple, a couple of months beforehand were mm-hmm. off the wall. I mean, it took... Uh, I, um, my girlfriend at the time was a woman called Diana, American woman, and uh, she could see really clearly that... Because uh, she didn't know anything about me or my family before she met me. Mm-hmm. And she just loved my songs. Mm-hmm. She absolutely loved my songs, but she couldn't understand why no one was listening. She mm-hmm. couldn't understand why I couldn't get gigs. And she kind of encouraged me uh, to do this mad thing. And it took three months to come up with the name. And uh, I can remember, I still to this, I remember telling my family and they understood. My mother was really worried about me. She thought I was losing the plot altogether. She thought I was mad. Um, Mothers know, you know. Yeah, but yeah, but she she didn't discourage it. No, she didn't she was discourage it, to you, wasn't she? Huh? She was important to you. Her 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 validation would be important. From what I've heard to talk about your mother. The last night out I had with my mother was um, about two weeks before she died. Um, it would have been 1992, and at this stage, I was into my second album with Warner Brothers, and I was home for a while, mm-hmm. and uh, I brought her to see a J.B. Keane play in the Gaiety. Just herself and myself. I went down to Newbridge, picked her up, drove her to Dublin, uh, got nice seats in the Gaiety. Uh, Half time in the bar, she. She two vodkas and our drink was vodka. Was it vodka and tonic or vodka and soda? I think she was vodka and tonic or vodka and soda. I can't remember which. And I had a big pint of Ballygowan and we sat there and we had a beautiful night. And, and on the way home, I played her 
a couple of new songs in a tape in the car, a couple of new songs I'd written and we talked about them. And that was the last time I was with her. Nice. And it was it's it's a beautiful, beautiful memory because I loved to do that. I loved she was she was a beautiful person to play your songs for because she always wanted to encourage, she never discouraged. I remember the the night my mother knew I was going to be okay. Cause she'd worried about me a lot. As all of us, she worried about all of us. She loved all of us equally. But she just I knew she was worried about me because she knew she she just didn't know what to make of me creating this Luca Bloom thing and going to America. She just didn't know what to make of it. And she she hoped it would be okay. But I remember um I did the Olympia maybe twice in that time. Um in nineteen ninety-one and nineteen ninety-two I did and I, 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 I still remember being unbelievably nervous because she was in one of the boxes, you know, those red yes, velvety yes. boxes. Yes. And she was in, sitting in one of them. And I still can remember clearly uh, singing in this amazing space that the Olympia is. And every now and then I just kind of look up a little bit out of the corner of my eye. And I noticed her and she wasn't looking at me. She was looking at the crowd. Mm-hmm. And I knew that night afterwards she gave me a big hug. And I think she had... It was a lovely thing because you want your ma to kind of... To know that you're all right, you know. You know what it's like. It's just... You could be 30 or 40 and she'll still be worried. Are you okay? Like, are you all right? What are you doing? What are you up to? Are you all right? And she had that right the day she died. Yeah. It's lovely. Yeah, but that's... But but I, I can still remember being on the plane, going to America and looking out the window at the clouds those big jumbo jets that used to fly across the Atlantic, the big, huge things that Aer Lingus had. And you'd, you'd be... I, I used to be a nervous wreck on those flights, flying off to New York, not knowing anyone. Let's go back to the, the first flight to but New York. But just, 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 yeah. that's, that's what I'm going to tell you. So I'm on the plane, I'm looking out the window, and in my, in my mind, I'm visualising meeting a guy in a pub or a club in Washington, D.C., or New York, or Boston, and I'm going, how are you? My name is Luca Bloom, I'm a singer, and uh, I, I'm looking for a gig, any chance of it. And that's literally what I did. Mm-hmm. That's literally what I... Washington. I started out in Washington. I ended up playing in a student's bar in... D.C. George, Washington, D.C., off Georgetown University. There was a place called Dillon's in Georgetown, in the heart of Washington, D.C. Where did you go the first night when you were... From, from the airport? Well, can I tell you a lovely story about my first gig in America? So at this stage, I was I was preparing to go to America mm-hmm. and I decided I wanted to do a series of residencies. And the only places I could get residencies was in cafes. So there was the Onion Field in Ranelagh and there was a place, there was, there was um, a youth hostel, Isaac's Youth Hostel. Mm-hmm. And then there was this place called The Colony, run by a man called Niall Carey, I think was his name. He had a place called The Colony off Grafton Street. And I was in there one Tuesday night and I was only singing my own songs. And I was preparing for the trip to America. I knew I had to have a set of between 20 and 30 original songs that I believed in, that I loved. Mm -hmm. And I was using these residencies in cafes, Mm -hmm. playing three nights a week to just sit there and sing my own songs for two hours. And one night I'm in the Colony restaurant and there was six people in the room. There was two waiters. And on one side of the room, there was a couple. And in the window of the cafe, there was another couple. And I sang my own songs for two hours and talked to the crowd and talked about the songs and then sang the songs. And at the end of the night, one of the waiters comes up to me and said, the couple in the window would love to, uh, um, they'd love to have a glass of wine, which I said, well, I won't have the glass of wine, but maybe if you bring over a pot of tea, I'll join them and have a chat. He turned out to be a man called Michael Jaworek and his wife, uh, her name is Debbie Smith. He's the biggest. He was the biggest independent promoter in Washington D.C., and she was his wife. And she's a singer. This is in Dublin. Now. In Dublin, yeah. and they were on their honeymoon. Great. And he gave me his card, and he said, "If you ever want to come to America, I want to book your first gig in Washington D.C." And about six months later, I did a gig in a place called Murphy's in D.C. and uh, a pub in Washington D.C. And that's kind of how it started. America's great. There's a there's a great energy in America that, absolutely that, 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 that gets under a musician and tells a musician they're good. It's very unusual experience mm-hmm. when you've gone through 15 years of kind of struggling and dealing with rejection mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and kind of sometimes feeling a bit humiliated to suddenly find yourself in a place where people are going, where are the tapes? Where are the T-shirts? Yeah. Uh, and, and getting on the phone and telling their friends about you and just investing this positive energy in your life. And that's, I mean, there's an awful lot that's hard to love about America, but I absolutely love America for that. They embrace art and artists and live music and live music music. in a very big 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 way Mm -hmm. they cherish it they value it you know and if i look at the people from north america from america and canada Mm -hmm. bob dylan neil young james taylor leonard cohen Joni mitchell i mean these are the people who kind of created my job Mm -hmm. so when i go to america i always i've always gone to america with gratitude yeah always and I, 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 I've had a lot of pain in America and really struggled with the politics of America. But I always am aware that everywhere I go in America, I meet really kind people who absolutely love music and want to support you because you're an original singer. Well, what amazed me was that a lot of the kind people I met were people that were completely different politics than I have. It, it kind of, it didn't happen here as much, you know, that I can't, yeah, good job. You know, you'd be playing, for me it was Pew Tunes and whatever in Chicago. And, and these really, really positive people go, good job, man, good, really enjoy them, and you'd be talking about them. And you'd realise that at the time it was Bill Clinton, that they, they hated Bill Clinton, and, and, and that I couldn't possibly have a, have, a, have a friendship with them. But they were still saying, your music is good, you know, you, 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 you have a good job, you're doing good, you're doing good things by playing. I really try, I really, really try and see that there's so much more to people than their opinions. Yeah, that's... Okay, yeah. Sometimes my opinions can be toxic. Sometimes mm-hmm. my ideas of what I believe to be right they are, are wrong. And uh, but they don't tell you who I am. They don't tell you. And also, it's 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 one thing to walk into a, an arena, a venue where you know you're around by like-minded people mm-hmm. who agree with your stance mm-hmm. on stuff. Mm-hmm. But isn't it much more exciting to go into a place where you? Maybe people have very different views than you have. Can I tell you something nice about that? Mm -hmm. When George Bush and Tony Blair wrote the... uh, Wrote, they did, they wrote this tragic war uh, in Iraq. They created it and it was... It was destined to be, and none of us were going to be able to stop it. And I was back home in Ireland in 2001. uh, It was 2003, sorry. um, And I realised one February morning that that war was going to happen. And uh, but I decided I didn't want to be another angry person. I didn't want to write an angry song, so I picked up the guitar. Will I play a bit of it, please. I picked up the guitar, and about ten o'clock in the morning, uh, two days after the biggest demonstration ever in Dublin against the Iraq War, I asked myself a really important question. I asked myself, "What would a child say?" I am not at war with anyone I am not at war with anyone Go away war planes You bring fear and shame I am not at war with anyone Give my love to Iraq and to Syria. I give my love to Israel and to Palestine. We could live as one between the sea and sun. I am not at one with anyone. To be friends with everyone, but I'd like to live in peace with everyone. This rush to war is wrong. I just sing my song. I am not at war with anyone. So I wrote that song and um, six months later I was doing a tour in America and I was so frightened 
of the American war machine and so just horrified that um, I wanted to pull the tour, I didn't want to do it. But I ended up doing it anyway. But And the first gig was in Washington. And uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the place now, it's a great place actually. And um, so I'm there backstage and I don't make out set lists but I just thought, what's the first song I want to sing? The first song, the first night the tour and I decided I just literally walked out on stage about 400 people there walked out on stage picked up the guitar and immediately sang that song I am not at war with anyone and uh, the line then was I give my love to Iraq and to America and it's the only time in my life I got a standing ovation at the end of the first song Mm. it's the only time in my life and it, it, it I'm not saying that because of the ovation. I'm saying it because of those people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because it wasn't an angry song. No, there's no there's nothing you disagree with. The, 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 it, it, it's yeah. to disagree with but it. Yeah. it but it, 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 when you sing it to people who are at war, yes, 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 you're yes. proposing a challenge. Yes, of course. Yeah. And that's, that's what I love about that's that song. That's the songwriter's song. job, though, isn't it? Huh? It's the songwriter's job to propose a challenge. No, it's not to me, it's not. The mm-hmm. song, it's not this songwriter's challenge. It's not my challenge. It's not my challenge to to challenge people's opinions or perceptions or anything. My challenge is to be true to myself and to be honest with myself. And uh, I don't write uh, political songs unless I actually feel in my gut because I don't want to be someone who's going on stage armed with his opinions. Mm -hmm. I don't really value my opinion all that much. The only thing I really value in the context of my songwriting is my gut and how I feel and how something just is so tragic that I have to respond to it. But I, I don't look for issues to write about so that I can... I feel you're more... Most does, does that make any sense? It does, a complete sense, absolutely, 100%. I don't explain you're, this very well. No, no, it's 100% you, what I know of you. I, I want to bring you to a song that you wrote. You, you've, a, you've an ability to capture moments and, and, and emotions. And I think the best song you've ever written was um, written... From a, 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 after meeting a, a friend of ours, Paul Hill, I hope you don't mind if, if you if I if I bring the guitar back up to you, because at the moment it seems even even more more um, powerful and and uh, Paul. For those of you that are listening, Paul Paul Hill was one of the Guildford Four at the during the seventies. The Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six and other people were convicted of in 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 England of. Um, of crimes, bomb bombings that they, they were completely innocent of. They were just picked out of squats in Paul and, and Jerry Condon's case. But Paul arrived in... we They became a cause celebrity, if that's not a... a we, we cared about them. And, and they were released and they were found exonerated. 16 years later. Yeah. And I sat down on, 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 on uh, Doolan Pier as Tony Blair apologised to, to, to the Guildford Four... And Paul didn't give a shit. He was, he was, he, he, he the, 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 the world's media were on his phone and he was just sitting there with me in an empty winter's day in Doolan. And it, it, it didn't mean a lot to him. But um, I think his daughter meant a lot to him. Maybe you could tell the story. Yeah, I, I met Paul um, around that time when he was there. And, I hope uh, you don't mind me asking to sing this song. No, I don't. I mean, I... I of course I don't. Um, it's hard singing it at the yeah, moment. I know. I, know. Um, I met Paul around that time, and we were we we we, we did a couple of great days sitting in the sun outside McGann's, and uh, it was just a lovely, lovely time. I have a couple of photographs of it. My son Robbie was there with I me. Was there with you were there with me. Sharon, Sharon was there. Connor was down. Connor Bourne was there. Um, Tony McQuaid of singing a great U2 song yeah, it was, yeah, I still yeah. haven't found what I'm looking for yeah. it was a lovely couple yeah, of days it went on for Anne and Davok were there and no it went on for a few days yeah. and it was really magical and Paul told me this beautiful story his daughter Courtney Kennedy and Paul's daughter Saoirse was about seven at the time and Paul told me this lovely story about being on Fenor Beach with Saoirse and um how the sun was setting on the Iron Islands and this seven-year-old girl full of that incredible wisdom that only children can have. She said, Daddy, thank you for bringing me here. And uh, 
Paul loved that. He just loved that so much. After being through all he'd been through during those 16 years in an English prison, to hear his daughter sing as the sun was setting on the Iron Islands, Daddy, thank you for bringing me here. And I've always, I've loved singing it. And my favourite moment actually singing that song, funnily enough, one of my favourite moments singing it was up in Fenor when poor old John O'Donoghue brought me up to his mother's house in Fenor once, again, one sunny Sunday. He said, I'd love you to sing this song for the mother. And with scones and tea in the kitchen, you know. So it's a song that means an awful lot to me on many different levels because John is no longer with us. But then again, I just like the song and I like singing it. And obviously the song took on a very different meaning in August, I think it was, 2019, when poor Saoirse so tragically died. And um, I actually thought to myself when that happened, I was so devastated that I'd stopped singing the song. And about a week later, I got a message from Paul saying, keep singing Saoirse's song for me. So... Paul Hill, if you ever get to hear this. For Paul and Courtney. So we're in County Clare. Aren't we just? We have to, <laughs> we so have to get here at some stage. <laughs> we've been all over the world. <laughs> we've been in Washington and we've been in Kildare and we've been in Leeson Street. <laughs> it all comes back to the banner now. Yeah, you're, you're here how long now, Bert? Uh, eight years. Is it eight years? Yeah, eight years and uh, I'm so happy about it. I really am. I mean, I, I thought about it a lot. 
I thought about it an awful And I was a little One thing I was a little bit nervous of was You know If there's a place that you love And you dream of going there I mean I will never forget the summer of Was it 95 or 96 When you were doing the sessions Down in McDermott's And I used to drive from Dublin on a Wednesday To go down And be with you And Quentin Quentin and and Ted and sometimes and Yvonne Yvonne arrived in there at that yeah. stage yeah it was a candy those, bandits yeah. those Wednesday and uh, Ted nights. McCormick was there oh my god so there was a lot oh, of songs. so when you're doing that like you used to travel down from I'd drive down from Dublin Wednesday. just for it on yeah. a Wednesday I'd drive down get in the car and I'd be, I'd be excited mm-hmm. and, and Doolin has this effect on me Claire has this effect on me at that time when I was living in Dublin and so I sometimes I'd go the Limerick Road and sometimes I'd go the Galway Road and as you'd come towards sort of Lockeray direction you'd start to see the burn off in the, in the distance on the left you'd see the limestone and you'd go oh man, oh man I'm nearly there, oh man and I'd get there and it never let me down it never disappointed me it was always fantastic and so when I eventually decided eight or nine years ago to make the move and to sell the house that I'd built in Kildare mm-hmm. to move to Clare. A little part of me was a little bit nervous. There was this fear that, you know, when you love a place to go to so much, when you then make the move and you're living there, you know, are you are you shattering the romance in some way because you're going to be amongst everyone there and in the place all the time? And uh, it's kind of astonishing the extent to which it surpassed all my expectations. It's like... It's kind of like my wildest dreams to live in, in, a, in, in a community full of people that are full of music and full of life and, and odd and quirky. There's nothing unusual about being somebody who plays an instrument and has a slightly quirky life. There's nothing unusual like that around here because there's so much of it. Mm-hmm. There's so much quirkiness and oddness and fun and divilment. And I, I've never lived anywhere else where you're in a supermarket doing your shopping and and the person, you know, who's maybe at checkout in, in, in Fitzpatrick's, you know, will have a chat with you about a session that they were at the two nights beforehand. And maybe they have a nephew that's playing a box and maybe they have another relative that's out dancing with Riverdance or something like that. Yes. There's such a deep connection. It's not a cultural thing. It's not entertainment. It's deep in people's lives. And it's ongoing. The young, young, the young youngsters are. There's way more youngsters. Sure, that's the best of it. Look, yeah. Paul Milan and yeah. the Queelys and the people that I've, mm. I've, be honest with you, were introduced to me because of you. I mean, some of these people I'm hearing now to just um, uh, Bernard Clark's daughter Sarah, like mm-hmm. all these people that you've introduced me to, they just blow my mind completely. In the same way that my mind was blown when I heard Michael and Gussie and Packy in it's 1974. Exactly the same, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you like it here? That's all right. The sea is important. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you live by the sea and I can see the sea it's just love, looking at your window here it's, it's, it's powerful it's beautiful it's yeah you, you, the, win, the winters I, you, you have a beautiful song called January Blues I won't ask you to sing it but it, it, I think you, you like it here all year round I love it yeah I love it I because you, like for those that don't know Luca Bloom you, 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 you have a you might have the perfect life. You, I, you, I've seen you travel to Australia maybe for eight weeks or seven weeks and you'd be playing gigs, 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 gigs and you'd be socialising all the time, meeting thousands of people every night and you might go to Belgium and Holland and you might go to America, you might go to England and then you come back here and normally after a tour, musicians... There's a thing, I, I have a team, I, 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 you swear I've done... This is only the second podcast, so we did Christy McNamara yesterday and, uh, but I, I, I think I want to have a team of that... You mightn't have any more, but loneliness as a musician is a theme that I want to pursue with a little bit with people because I've known musicians and I've known myself the, the low of coming off a stage. I, I met a very, very well-known Irish singer in Chicago in tears after having one of the best gigs of our lives, you know, because the, the high is gone and something happens. And it's the same after a tour, I think, for, for many musicians, or it certainly was for many musicians that they wouldn't know what to do when they get home. They're, they're, they're a little bit low. Uh, but you seem to have a... A connection with like you're as excited about one life as you are as about it's all the one life, but you're excited. I think the, I think the trick is to stay alive. <laughs> I think the trick is to just stay alive and learn because, it, you know, hotel I know, rooms are lonely. I don't agree with that. Okay, I don't agree with that. I think I think I know what loneliness is for me, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I wasn't alone when I was feeling lonely sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I differentiate between a solitude and isolation. These are things that I've had to learn over the years. And some of, them, some of it is to do with learning strategies. So 
I understand what that person was talking about, about the gig, but I learned a great trick with that in relation to the gig. Uh, of course there's the high of the gig. Of course there's, you know, it's it, it, it's a bizarre thing to be standing on a stage singing your songs and having all that energy coming back at you, often in the form of a kind of a love, a kind of a version of a kind of a love. And so, when, of course, when you walk off the stage and you're in the dressing room alone, that's quite a shock to the system. And... Um, and and you almost have to make a transition into the other life immediately. And I've learned a great trick with that. When I walk off the stage, I very consciously walk into the dressing room. I take a deep breath. I take off the, the dripping shirt. I have a little quick wash. I dry myself off. And I put on a fresh shirt or a T-shirt or whatever. And that's it. The gig is over. And now I'm back in the real world immediately, as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And then I can walk out and say hello to people after the gig. So then when the tour is over, um, I come home. I would like to call myself, a, I'm a social loner. I love people. I really love people. I love going out and meeting people. If I could be paid for walking up and down the prom in Lahinch and chatting to people and sitting on the wall and chatting with men and women in their 80s sucking on a 99. If I could earn a living from just chatting to those people, I'd do it all day, every day, and I'd give thanks for it because I absolutely love that part of life. I love going out and meeting people. I even enjoy going to the supermarket because the people in Fitters are so friendly. I love going into Enestimon or going anywhere and just meeting people and hanging out. And then I come home and I'm here and I don't feel lonely all. It's just me, mm-hmm. the guitar. You see this, the whole place is music like this. Mm-hmm. There's, I have seven guitars here in this room. Where this is the kitchen, like. <laughs> I, meant, I, meant, I meant more than the, the, the down after the tour. That probably doesn't happen anymore, but you're happy to come back here. There is a, there's, a, there's a bridge to everything. There's a bridge. I mean, imagine what it's like for someone coming home from a war. Imagine what it's like for a soldier coming back from the Lebanon after doing okay. six months Doing six months. Imagine what it's Context, like for. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course, uh, yeah. So we, this is it's this this first world problem. Basically. It's not even first world problem. It's not unique to musicians. Yeah, yeah. There are these. Imagine what it's like for a fellow who's working on an oil rig yeah. and he's out in an oil rig for six months, and, and then he, there's maybe three kids waiting in a housing estate at home for him. They can't wait, and they run to see him. But the transition for him. Mm-hmm. The transition from that isolation, that loneliness, that in your job, in your head, doing whatever you're doing, to then suddenly being, whether you're living alone or with a family. So we all have to navigate these bridges. And uh, and yeah, sure, there's times I'm lonely, there's times I'm down. But you see, I'm so blessed because I remember the time when I was lonely every day. Mm-hmm. I remember the time when I was lost every day. I remember the time when I was in packed bars. I could be in toners or nesbits and the place would be heaving and I'd be sitting in the corner of the place wanting to cry because I felt so completely alone and so not belonging. That's loneliness. That's loneliness. Mm-hmm. The pain and not being able to tell anyone how much pain you're in. Mm-hmm. That's loneliness. So when I come home from a tour... I just instantly tap into the gratitude. I'm so I have an unbelievable life that and all I have to do is stay awake, stay alive, mind myself, kind of eat half decent, two bit of stretch and go for a walk and then be kind. Take care of myself and be kind to everyone else. That's really all I'm interested in. Yeah, so things are good. <laughs> not too bad <laughs> not too bad but you find you find musicians here too you're, you're it's it's all here for you you I mean you're John Owen Adam and, and, and you, 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 you there's a, there's I mean, always somebody the, the, to play with the, 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 Christy that, Barry all that was there before I came all yeah. that was there I, I didn't know John I didn't know Adam really you know I didn't know Kieran. I knew you uh, I knew Yvonne I knew Quentin a bit Um. And there are lots, obviously, you Christy Barry, for God's sake. I remember Christy so well from the, and so many of those people, Davy Spillane. I mean, there's so many people that I'd known, but not really known. You, you bump in, you know what it's like. You bump into them here, there and everywhere. Uh, 
but now I'm here and uh, and, I my, si- and my sister Anne and Davok, you yes. know, Anne and Davok down in Milltown Malbay, writing songs, singing songs, Davok playing the tunes up in the cliffs and like I, I Davok just, is only happening now. It's, it's like all his life he, he's been playing music. Well, to me, Davok is like the Leonard Cohen of the Tin Whistle. He's, 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 when he hit the mid seventies, he came into his groove. And, and even in the last two years, uh, since he's eighty now, I think. And it's something beautiful, really, going on with his tone, you know, on the whistle. And he's really getting it, and he's really enjoying it. And Anne has two albums made now. And I think you might have been responsible for getting her playing the guitar as well. That's great. I mean, I remember I, I do a radio show on Claire FM, and I remember doing three songs in a row from people of the same family, Christy Moore, Luca Bloom, and Anne Rin. <laughs> all yeah. three in a row and it was nice one nice, thank you no it was nice it was also nice to, you know to, to be able to introduce with three different surnames but it was kind of cool we'd be lost without radio wouldn't we for, yeah and I, that's I, I like and I want to thank you for doing this because I, this podcast is new for me I, I, I think maybe even radio is getting too fast I really I really think that we need to slow down and, 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 and chat and it's podcast. funny you should say that a lot of the time music that I listen to funnily enough is American I listen to NPR stations and part of the reason I do is because you're not bombarded with ads, you know, where they turn on the ads every 10 minutes and they turn up the volume on the radio for the ads. And I appreciate that stations, radio stations have to survive. Mm-hmm. I, I totally get that. And people need uh, income to, uh, to, to survive. And they have this different system in national public radio in America, whereby they, 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 they're paid by government and then they get sp- sponsorship, uh, sponsored programs. But you're absolutely right what you say. And interestingly, more and more people are turning to podcasts mm-hmm. for that reason, because you can have in-depth interviews views you can have conversations you can have a bit of a laugh a fellow might pick up a guitar and play a tune and isn't that what people love because listening to radio is such an intimate experience most people listen to radio on their own Mm -hmm. can I tell you a gas story that just flashed into my mind about this and this is what I love about radio and it's also what I love about the internet I remember one time doing an interview and it was a live on the air interview with a radio station in Queensland I was releasing an album and I'd be up in the middle of the night doing a whole series of arranged interviews with radio stations in Australia because I'd be coming out on tour and they want to be promoting the gigs. And it was a radio st- and I knew that it was four o'clock where I was. So it was something like three o'clock in the morning in Queensland. And I said to the presenter who was interviewing me, I said, do you mind me asking you something? I said, who's listening? Like, who's listening to this? And he said, farmers are listening. And people out in the bush are listening. And people who are minding animals are listening. Truck drivers are listening. They're out and they're driving. Nighttime people are fascinating. Oh, and like, and suddenly that interview that was live, I was in a flat in Dublin. And that interview that was live, it took on a whole new meaning to me and a whole new significance to me that I was able to actually speak to people who is someone who is driving a truck across the outback in Australia. Mm-hmm. Like, that just blows my mind. Yeah, that's great, yeah. I know. Um, I appreciate this. I appreciate it very much. It's exactly what I, I hope for. I love and it. And it's exactly what, what I... It's know. always great to see you. And I'm very grateful to you for all the people you've introduced me to, especially musically around here, but the mutual friends that we have now and that... Uh, I'm just really grateful. You're a great champion of music and... I know that people appreciate that about you. You just, you know, you bring people into the radio and you make everyone feel like they're important and that's a beautiful thing no matter who they are. And that's a great gift that you have and it's great what you're doing, Owen. Thank you. Well, thanks, Luca Bloom. And would you, would you please uh, sing a song to finish yeah, your song? sure. Um, let me get a capo. I'll think about yeah. a song. Just keep them talking there for a second. I need keep to talking. Yeah. <laughs> These, these these podcasts are, are just where I want to meet up with people and, and, and without not knowing what we're going to talk about. I had no idea what we were going to talk about. Luca Bloom has gone off getting a, a, a capo. And uh, I, I had a much easier job not knowing what I was going to talk about when he was sitting here in front of me than here now, no, not knowing what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> He's not having much luck with the capo. Um, there's albums. Lots and lots of albums, Luca Bloom. Oh, is that you to sing? No, I, 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 I think I leave that one up to you. I gave you my request earlier and you did it, thanks. And, uh, I'm kind of torn. If you want to visit County Clare, you'll, you'll find. We're all around here. Please come. That's a nice guitar bar. 
It's a, a nylon stringed Loudon. George Loudon is a man I'd kind of avoided for years because I sort of, um, I I I'd, I'd made a virtue all my life of having kind of road warrior type guitars that I, you know. Were, were affordable to change because I was touring so much for so many years that I would try I'd make a kind of a virtue out of trying to get a great sound out of cheap guitars and then when I turned 60 I, I got this idea Janie Mac wouldn't it be nice wouldn't it be nice to have a guitar that was easy to play for my aging fingers and also sound beautiful and uh, so I, I literally went up to George Loudon in County Down and I had an amazing conversation with him about guitars and he kind of challenged me about what I liked and didn't like about guitars and what might or might not work for me and as I was answering his questions about my challenges with guitars he was mentioning woods different woods that might work for this sound or that sound and I said to him, I'd love you to make me a guitar that was easy for me to play that would still help me to sound good. And uh, about three months later, he emailed me and said, I'd like to make a guitar for you. I'll sing this song for you, Owen, because I know you like it. Uh, I'll do my best with it. I haven't sung it for a while, but I'll give it a go. I'll sing this to you as a way of saying thank you for all you do for all the musicians and singers, especially in County Clare. And Adam will be able to edit out all my tuning. Thank you, Adam. That won't be edited. (laughs) Thanks, Luca Bloom.
She watched the last star falling As the prison ship sailed out against the sky She will live in hope and pray For her love in Botany Bay Fields of Athenry Lie the fields of Athenry Where once we watched the small free birds fly Our love was on the wing We had dreamed songs to sing It's so lonely Around the fields of Athenry It's so lonely Around the fields of Athenry